Well, um, I'm a Zen teacher. Teacher is kind of a funny word for what this is. Um, we say teacher, but it isn't like a kindergarten teacher or a physics teacher or something like that. It isn't like having a whole lot of information that then you convey to somebody else so they can convey it to somebody else or use it in some way. Um, it's, it's more about uh, reflecting and confirming um, each other's experience. So when you do a meditation practice, um, many things happen um, because you're sitting down with your whole life. Um, it, it's a very wonderful and strange experience because although it looks like nothing is happening and somebody comes to watch us sit, um, it's a very, very dramatic and dynamic event for us. My teacher, Cobancino, used to say he could see flames licking around people's knees as they were sitting. Um, it's very intense sometimes. So um, teaching is about talking about the experience itself because it's not an idea. Um, it's not any kind of... Um, It's not an object. Sitting is an experience. I, I sometimes talk about it like, like swimming, that, that we can create all kinds of fancy ideas and theories about swimming, and we can make diagrams and we can describe it to people, but, but if, if the people we're talking to have never even been near the water, um, it's not going to make any real sense to them. But if they've been in the water and have been swimming around for a while, then, of course, you know, then we come out of the water with all kinds of uh, interesting experiences and questions and want to develop it further. So that's really kind of what, what I always think this experience is. When I first started sitting, I was terrified. I was very, very shy and very, very scared. and really didn't know what I was doing. But I kept coming back. Uh, I would slip in and not talk to anybody and then slip out and run home again. And I was, I, I was what my teacher always called a housewife. He kept saying, I don't know how a housewife can do this practice like that. But of course, of course. Um, One of the places um, where I sit every week is in San Jose. And usually, um, besides the sitting, we uh, pick up a subject to discuss and the subject that we've been discussing in the last month now, and probably will for many months to come, is a, a subject called the paramitas. I don't know if you've ever heard of the paramitas. It's, uh, it's um, 
means the perfections, which already is kind of terrifying. Um, <coughs> but it, it means how, how to be conscious in the world. It's, it's a little collection of ways of addressing our life that are all intertwined with each other that help us to um, stay awake. And that's what Buddha means. Buddha means awake. It's not anything fancy at all. And paramitas, the practice of perfections, is the life of the bodhisattvas, which are enlightening beings. They're before Buddhas the ones who decide not to be Buddhas until everybody can be Buddhas, until everybody wakes up. So the paramitas start out with generosity. Real plain and simple, just plain generosity, just giving. Um, But there are many, many aspects of giving, um, from uh, wrapping up a present and giving it to um, receiving help, which is a kind of gift, to um, giving fearlessness to those who come into our life, a very big and important one in Buddhism, giving fearlessness. Then there's uh, morality. And in Zen, there was a whole era where um, people uh, in the 50s and 60s picked up Buddhism through Zen and understood it that it should be all about spontaneity, that you just do whatever you want and it's okay because it's all relative anyway. Uh, and so uh, there was a lot of craziness and foolishness in the name of um, spontaneity. And, and it meant throwing, throwing the precepts out the window throwing morality out the window. Oh, we don't need that anymore. It doesn't matter. Since it's all relative, it doesn't matter. But actually, it matters a great deal. If our life isn't straight, um, nothing else works very well. We can make it work. We can override our immorality and appear in the world and work. But there's always something a little wrong with it something a little skewed, and it takes extra effort. So one of the, one of the best teachings of Buddha is um, to have the, an easy, a life of ease, an easy mind, is to, to stay straight, to stay really straight. It doesn't mean being good in the way that our Sunday school teacher said, you must be good. Um, it's, it, what, it, it's what arises out of us, our own deep intention and our own deep understanding of, of what it is to, to live for the benefit of all, for our benefit and for everyone's benefit. And the next one is... Um, Patience, extremely important, especially with this practice, isn't it? I mean, 
good night just to come and sit on the cushion for 10 minutes or 20 minutes sometimes just seems um, like asking a lot. We, we spend so much time in a busy world being so busy ourselves to come and, and allow ourselves this, I always think it's a gift that we give to ourselves, this, this oasis of peace and calm and quiet. It takes a lot of patience sometimes not to just get up and go and do something else. It takes a lot of patience just to live, um, especially and not to be caught by things. Uh, it's so easy for our mind to be caught and start. My best example is a friend who was always very antsy and always in a hurry and always trying to get somewhere else. And she hated red lights. She lives in San Francisco, and of course she's dealing with red lights all the time, and she hated them. And then someone told her about Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, suggestion that when you get to a red light, that you use it for, as a, a chance to practice mindfulness so that you, you become very awake and aware and breathe and be aware of your breathing as you're sitting there. And at first, she just thought it was the stupidest idea she ever heard. And how could you do that? And then after a while, she started finding herself getting very upset when the light turned green. And <laughs> she was enjoying it so much, just sitting there. Patience is a, is a very um, fine friend for us. Because once we can slow down, we begin to come into our own into our own authentic life. We're, we're mammals and um, we're two-leggeds and we don't really do so well in speed. So if, if we can encourage ourselves to slow down and have the patience to sit down, um, already things begin to relax a little bit. But the other side of that is effort, which is the the next paramita. And right effort, or the uh, pure effort, is is what's required to keep on sitting. Um, Buddha said it was like uh, tuning a violin, that if if you turn it too tight, the string will break. So if you're sitting really, really hard, it, it, you'll, you'll fall over, probably. Um, it doesn't work very well. But if you sit too, too loose, and there is loose sitting, where you just sort of spin off and uh, who knows where, and um, that's like a loose string. You can't make music with a loose string. It just flops around. So, and it's different every single moment. So the effort is about every moment, not some overall picture. Um, Alas, there is no overall picture. Um, And there's a tendency in our mind to think that if we just get to the right place and stay there, everything will be okay. 
But right effort is about seeing that the effort happens every moment because the moment changes continually. We think we get it all nailed down. Oh, now I know. This is it. Poof! It's all changed in a minute. It's like how dry and still it was yesterday all over our world and how raging and wet it is tonight. It's just a, it's a different world completely. So effort requires us to, to meet each moment and meet the, meet the change as it happens. Be the change, actually. And the fifth one is meditation itself. So you can see how they're all tangled up with each other. It's all actually, if you pick up one, you pick up all of them. If you pick up meditation, you certainly pick up effort and patience and morality because our morality arises out of our self-knowledge. There are different kinds of effort, I should say. I wanted to talk about Shakyamuni Buddha's experience because when he first uh, took off and went to live uh, with the sadhus in the jungle or in the woods, he um, was making a huge effort to transcend, transcend the body, transcend the mind. Um, They wore no clothes. Their hair was all, they didn't cut their hair. Um, They let the sun beat down on them. They ate less and less food until they were down to one grain of rice a day. Uh, And the whole effort was um, an enormous effort to overcome this this limitation, this tremendous limitation of, of being human, with this feeling that there's something else, there's some way to reach something else, something greater, greater than we are. And finally, he changed. He changed completely. He decided that that was not working. He almost died. That's why he stopped. And you can see those, those statues sometimes. There's a beautiful statue where it shows him sitting. And he's just, it's all it's a skeleton with just the thinnest skin over it, just barely held together because he was so close to death. And he thought, hmm, maybe this isn't, isn't going to work. So he, he, he was offered food, and he accepted it. And he washed himself off, and he decided he would sit down for a while and really look at his own life, face himself, rather than trying to transcend it. Uh, it was a, a, a revolutionary thing to do. And... We're duplicating that every time we sit down. Um, It wasn't a brand new thing by any means. Um, In one sense, I think as soon as human beings could become aware at all that that we began to find practices that would keep us uh, present and awake, it's a survival thing in a way, and it's also something that drives us. It's in us to wake up. It's also in us to go to sleep, so we're often at odds with ourselves. Um, 
Buddha's experience was was very um, such a profound one that we inherit it today. It's our inheritance. Um, and when he um, saw through, he saw through uh, the illusions, all the stories that we create, all the dilemmas that we invent, all the worries that um, seem real to us, um, all the temptations, the wild temptations and the silly ones. It was a, a long process of seeing through. And when he was finished, he, he glanced up and the morning star was in the sky. And he said, all beings are enlightened with me. He didn't say, oh, look at me, I'm enlightened. It's all, this is wonderful. He saw how all of it is working together. So that each of us is a view of the whole thing. And the whole thing is each of us. Very mysterious. In Zen, we say, not one, not two. Not one, not two. And the last paramita is wisdom. Um, Which doesn't mean street smarts necessarily, though it could. In in Sanskrit, there are two words for wisdom. One is the kind of wisdom that um, names and separates and analyzes everything so that this is different from this. Even this is different from this. Um, Much less this is different from this. We've done this with everything that we experience. We have sliced it all up and named it. And our tendency is to think that they're separate, that um, the clock is separate from the wood and the wood is separate from the rug. And in, in a way, it is, of course. But in another way, there is no separation at all. You cannot pick up one thing and separate it from everything else. There is nothing that's separate from everything else. It's very strange, isn't it? So if you pick up one thing, they say you pick up everything with it. Um, And so you can bow to anything with tremendous respect and be bowing to it and everything at the same time. It's it's a wonderful practice to, to find where respect really lies, how to see things as they are. And that's the wisdom mind the mind that sees the interconnectedness of everything. We, both minds are at work, both minds always. But often we uh, lose the sense, the overall sense of, of our interconnectedness. So that um, it, I always think it's like this index finger starts setting itself aside and saying, well, it has nothing to do with that toe down there. It's completely different um, and unique in every way. And, um, of course, they're related. Um, In fact, they belong together. 
So it's, um, it's a very important thing to know about how to, how to stay awake to the connections as well as the, the individuality. So that's your crash course in the paramitas. Um, I find them very helpful, not as laws or rules even, but as ways to, to um, remember and, and appreciate, appreciate uh, the Dharma. We call it the Dharma, which means the truth, which is a kind of fancy thing to talk about. But actually, the truth is very simple. It's very simple and very uh, modest. So are there questions? Like discussion, if you would like a discussion, we can talk a lot if you like. Yes? Um, How would you weigh and the paramedics that you just talked about with the problem of karma. So in the instance that we're born, we have karma. And then there's what we do with the rest of our life, which has to do with the paramedics. That's right. It's, it's how we are with our karma. And we can be twirled around by it. You know, just be born and then and our genetics and our, our background and our conditioning and all of those things can just twirl us around from till we're till we, we die. Or we can wake up and see what what it is, understand our conditioning, understand how things are with us. And and meditation is a tremendous aid in that because we can't run away. If we sit down, things just rise, bubble right up, and we can't avoid it. So it's, it's, our, it's a difficult practice that way, but it also allows us to face our karma and understand it. And the paramitas give us um, uh, a way, a reminding way of, of, of dealing with it. One of, the, one of the things that our karma often does is to create a sense of grasping in us. We want to hold on. We want to make it okay. We want to protect ourselves in some way. And the paramitas is about opening our heart and opening our hands. Um, that's why dana paramita, the giving one, is the first one, I think. Because once you begin to give, instead of holding on so tight and keeping, then, then the heart just naturally opens up. And it's easier to practice the other ones. Does that help? Yeah. Yes? Do you think the paramedas are instinctive in some way or need to be cultivated? Both. I think they're both. If you look at little children when they're two and three years old, they, they bring presents to people, uh, to each other, little kids, as well as fighting over their toys. They often give a toy. And uh, a, ch- a little child will often come up to a grown-up with a beautiful rock or a mushy leaf or something that seems very precious and give it. So there's, there, I think it's very natural. All of them are.
but then we have all these other, you know, we have the lizard mind as well. So, um, the lizard mind, yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's the grabby one. It's it's the more primitive mind. Yeah, yeah, reptile. <laughs> no offense to the reptiles, of course. <laughs> I have a friend who loves lizards, and she hates it when I say that. But it, there is, you know, this part of our brain is is the most ancient part. And it's it's about survival only, and um, and the paramitas are are about appreciating um, survival, of course, but there's there's so much more, and we're we're actually able to um, express and experience it, and even in clumsy ways find words for it, and of course the words are clumsy. They're all pointing to something, pointing to each one of us, actually. Yeah. Um, can you explain more what you mean about the gift of fearlessness? That's my favorite, actually. <laughs> I think because I was such a fearful person for the first 30 years of my life I was I was afraid of shadows um, and when I first began this practice I was afraid of the practice too you know everything scared me my teachers scared me <laughs> it's funny to think of it now but it it was true and um, so I it, it has real meaning for me because the practice itself created a safe space, just as this place is a, 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 a created safe space for us to meet in. And only when you feel in, in, safe can you really be yourself, freely yourself. Can you um, put down your defenses, whether they're you know, hiding behind it or trying to dominate the situation, either one is a defense, and just be there. Jeez, just be there in the most simple way. And uh, that's one definition of a Buddha, is one that um, gives fearlessness. You see those. Um, I was looking at the, at the statue over there, and um, I don't quite know what this mudra is, the fearlessness one is just the open hand. Fear not, fear not. It's okay, it's okay. And you can feel how, how everything begins to, all, all that tension begins to, to fall. Um, and once fearlessness is... Um, once we're able to live that way, then suddenly so many more things are possible. So many more um, insights are possible in our own life, and we can give so much more. We can provide so much more of our own life and energy to the world. So it's a very big present to give to people. You know it with children. 
You know, if a child is scared, your, your impulse is to pick it up and comfort it and make it feel less frightened. Um, and in some sense, uh, we're all children. My father-in-law was a wonderful Buddha that way. He was not afraid himself. He was absolutely not afraid of anything. And he went through the Second World War with SS officers living in the house. He was arrested. He had terrible experiences in the Second World War in Holland. And um, he was never afraid. He had absolute faith that things were going to be all right. And including if he was going to be killed. He he said that was okay too. So that he could just really be there for people. And to be with him was so wonderful. You just felt okay in a way that uh, I, at least, often did not. So I know that on both sides, what what a gift it is to receive that. Yeah. Yes. Was your experience with fearlessness a linear one? Or did it come up at some point and then Did you wake up one morning and discover that you weren't afraid of No. I don't think there was a when it happened. So it was just It must have been. I have no idea. I can look back on it now and think, wow, <laughs> that was something. But I don't know when it stopped. Did you find it possible? Oh, there are all kinds of theories. Um, well, I think some of it was, um, a lot of it was that I, before I was born, my mother was very frightened. She had been in a terrible automobile accident and had broken her back and barely survived it, married my father, um, and her first pregnancy was uh, full term, and the baby was born horribly, horribly, um, just everything was wrong with it, and it died very quickly. So when she was pregnant with me, I know she must have been afraid. And I, my theory is that I just um, knew that fear in myself, and it wasn't anything to do with me. It was just her anxiety. Yeah. Is there anything else? Yeah. Um, I have a question. I guess it's kind of big that relates to your, your talk. Um, I think sometimes about, well, like all the sort of mental baggage I had before I came to start sitting. Um, I'm from the Midwest, and um, I was taught, you know, in a Christian family, God, others, and then self. So I kind of have this reverse problem. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, you know, it's like I have to look at where my boundaries are. So. Yes. So one of the things I started doing was flipping the stuff around and saying, okay, how do I give fearlessness, for example, to myself? Yes. This is a huge problem. Yeah. Yeah, especially for women. Um, and and that I'm glad you brought it up because that's one of my um, 
It's my big question, too, how we talk about this. And, and I, I think often these were posited for, for um, people who weren't raised the way we were in the Midwest. I, I was raised in St. Louis, so I know what you mean exactly. Um, and, and selflessness means that you subvert yourself completely in what I call be a doormat and serve others, and everybody gets served before, you know, before um, one does. It doesn't mean being a do- doormat. Uh, I, that's, it's very important to know that. It, and uh, one, of the, one of the greatest teachers, um, ancient teachers in India, was Nagarjuna, who always said, when you practice, you address your life first. You take care of your own self first, and then others. Um, and for some people, that's quite natural. And, and, um, and for some people, you have to flip everything around, you know, as you say, in order to understand that, because it feels so counter to what, how we've been raised. And it's funny because when I do that, like say fearlessness, yeah. then I become light and I will laugh more and I'm physically more at ease and everything. And that is contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And then I also will notice like if somebody has around who's sort of like, I don't know if I want to say bad vibes, but like if they're really like in a bad mood or anything, bad moods are that's right, and not get hooked into somebody else's mood. Yeah, maintain integrity. That's that's the trick. And again, it changes every moment. So one moment you think it's it's one moment it's fine, and then the next, we have to be extremely flexible in order to meet and change as everything around us meets and changes. But change in a way that that maintains our own integrity. If we just get grumpy when somebody else is grumpy, it's it's kind of pointless. <laughs> self knowledge and self enjoyment. Now, one of the descriptions of meditation is uh, the self enjoying the self, uh, and it's that joy. There's a deep joy. There's the sort of giddy joy of 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 just being sort of casually happy, but there's a deep joy of just being this, of truly being what this is. It's really most amazing. Did you have a question? When you started to talk about your mother and yourself being born into that anxiety, I suddenly woke up for a moment. And I wondered if you could say a little more, or maybe you've already said it and I missed it, about how your fearlessness began to go away through your meditation practice. How your fear began to go away, or how it changed. I don't know how it changed. The way I explain it to myself is that um, fear, like a lot of Things that we experience um, isn't true in the way that um, some things are. 
that we are, that I am. That there's a truth about us, and then there, there are all these accretions, and that fear was an obvious accretion. It was a conditioning um, that, that I had no control over. Um, so I, I had to, or I was lucky enough to meet, a, um, to meet it. Uh, a lot of people uh, are conditioned and don't know what their conditioning is, and so they, it, it's a kind of blind life. Just blindly do what, what you have to do because you don't know any different. And it seems like that's all there is. But once you sit in meditation, then you begin to see uh, everything opens up, doesn't it? It gets bigger. Your mind gets bigger. And there's more room to, to move around and, and actually um, see what's going on. So I, um, my, my idea, I guess, is that things... It feels to me when I do a long retreat, for instance, that after a few days of sitting, things start to fall off. It's just like there are all these accretions and they all start to sort of fall right off of me. And uh, I end up feeling quite naked by the end uh, and very light because we hold on to so many unnecessary things and that fear was one of them. Yes. You mentioned morality. Somebody asked a teacher what the essence of Buddhist practice was, and he said, um, to stop all evil and do all good, and be, um, take care of everybody. When they asked the Dalai Lama the same thing at Harvard, he said, just be kind. There are precepts. No, uh, the pre- three pure precepts are just embracing and sustaining right conduct, every good, and all beings. So that's the same thing. And then in the prohibitory precepts of no killing, no stealing, no lying, no abusing drugs and alcohol, and no sexual misconduct. So those are, those are all the way through every flavor of Buddhism, those five are, are very strict. But they're impossible. You know, if you really start to look at them, um, you see that every time you um, take a bite of food, you've, you've participated in killing, even if it's a carrot. Somebody pulled that poor carrot out of the ground and uh, wrecked its life for you know, my sake so I can chew it up and make it into my life. So it's, it's actually the precepts um, and morality are, are more about being awake, about really seeing when we take something, whether, we, whether it's actually being given or whether we're just grabbing it, and seeing what our connection with things is, seeing what it is when we eat something, seeing what it is when we open our mouth, how often we don't tell the truth. Although... We, we study these sometimes in, in San Jose, too, and we take them home and say, okay, this week I'm going to think about lying. And I always think, well, I don't tell lies. I'm very careful about telling lies. And it's amazing. 
You should try it. See how many times you just start to... It's not quite... You wouldn't think it's really a lie, but of course it is. As soon as you start tweaking the truth, it's it's tweaking the truth. So uh, all of them are actually impossible to um, completely keep, but they're very, very helpful in encouraging us to stay awake in our life, in the middle of our life, not as an intellectual exercise, but right here where our desires um, and our needs and our survival reside. Yeah. Um, this relates to the question. How do, how do we think about what sexual misconduct is today in America? Oh, that's a big question. And and like all the others, it's not cast in bronze somewhere where we can look it up and decide. We have it's it's pretty much um, deep lo- looking deep asking about about how to do. So the the understanding about the precepts is not that they're like um, commandments that are coming from on high, but that they're rising up out of our own life. And so the best way to know what to do is to sit down and, and not even study it so much. It's just let it... Um, slowly tell us how, how to do and how to be. It, it's a big question. It's the whole question of sexuality is enormous because it affects so many. It affects other people and it affects the next generation. Um, it's, it's fulfillment. It's, it's enormous desire that drives us in a huge, huge way. Um, it, it's one of the best tests of us, you could say, of, of how we are. And, and depending on the culture that we're living in, then of course we have to acknowledge the culture and try not to offend and still keep that old integrity going. So it's very tricky, especially in this day and age. It's a wonderful age in a way because we're, we're so free, but it's also difficult because we have to figure it out ourselves. So the idea is to have, not have sex without a committed relationship or Well, some people, some teachers say so. Um, you know, in Buddha's time, they were all monks, and so they didn't have sex at all. So, but, you know, we're not monks. <laughs> and he, 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 met and worked with lay people all the time, and he didn't say that they shouldn't have sex. It, uh, you can think of it in terms of the, of the teaching of do no harm, which is the other way of saying be kind. You know, if what you do is not harming others, then uh, including yourself, then that's a pretty good guide. And, of course, then you have to define what harm is, and you can get into a whole semantic thing about that, too. So it's not easy, truly not easy. Yeah. Well, should we go out into the raging storm and um, commit ourselves to, to the wind?
Thank you all. I've enjoyed this a lot. Good luck. <laughs>